Thank you for listening to this sermon from Goodwill Church, located in New York's Hudson Valley. Goodwill Church is on a mission to be a hub of revival in the Northeast and beyond. For more information about our church, please visit goodwillchurch.org. Now, here's the sermon. So we are here in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 17. This is part of the two chapters that include seven letters to seven churches. We're looking at the first three of these letters. This is already the third of our 10-volume, 10 10-issue, 10 10-weekend 10 uh, series in Revelation. It'll be interrupted by Advent, so it'll take us into 2023. We have, as well, a verse-by-verse detailed study of Revelation happening here on Wednesday nights. It's never too late to join in that. Come that Come to that whenever you can. People are loving that. There's a lot to study, a lot to learn. At the same time, it can be much more simple to understand the book of Revelation than you might have thought previously. And that's been the big surprise that people have expressed to me. So here we are. We're looking at three letters to three churches. It might seem like a lot of verses. Hang with me. You'll see some similarities in how they're addressed, but you'll see that they're different because the churches are different. A church is a gathering of believers, and these gatherings of believers are in different places, and so they have different circumstances, different challenges. They're faring well or not so well. There's differences there as well. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 17, this is the Word of God. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And to the angel of the church of Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, 
I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Pray with me if you would. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of Revelation. Thank you for giving us an interest in it. Thank you for giving us understanding of it. We know these things come for you, and then they come from you, and they are for you. They come from you. What comes from you as well is our ability to heed your word, to obey it, to do what it says. Help us with all this, and help us to bring you glory through all this. In your name, Jesus, we pray. And all of God's people said, amen. How are you? That's a question that you have heard more than any other question. And it's a question you have asked more than any other question. Mostly because it's part of how we greet people in our part of the world. Hi, how are you? We say that all the time. And there's nothing wrong with that. I don't want to poke at that or pick that apart. I'll talk about why people poke at it and pick it apart. If you study history and society, you'll see that there are greetings similar to this all over the world. And when we greet people, we want to have our relationship with that person get off on the right foot. And so we do that by indicating that we care how they're doing. In the Arab world, throughout the Middle East, the traditional way to greet others properly has been to say, "Assalamu alaikum, may peace be with you. And the response to that is, wa alaikum assalam, and peace be upon you. It's another way of indicating that you care about how somebody's doing. Hi, I hope you're doing well. Hi, I hope things are going good for you. It's different, but it's, it's the same posture. You go into a store and you'll hear somebody say, hi, how can I help you? Then it'll say, hi, what do you want to buy? Right? They're inquiring how you're doing. So people complain about this sometimes because it turns out that how are you is one of the most important questions there are. It's the gateway question to the big questions of life and relationships and even our eternal well-being. That's why people sometimes have a problem with it. It's built in. It's how we address each other, how we talk to each other, how we say hi to each other, how we greet each other. And there's not anything wrong with it, except sometimes people don't like it because they don't want it just to be the greeting this question, how are you? And sometimes you'll see people mess with it, right? Hi, how are you? Fine, and how are you? Fine, but let me ask you, how are you really? <laughs> right? You've had that? Usually we're most annoyed by that, how are you really, when we really need to have somebody ask us how we are. Sometimes people mess with it because you say, hi, how are you? And then the response is, well, hi, I don't think you really want to know. Or do you really want to know? And it's like, you messed it up. That's not how it's supposed to go. We're just saying hi. We're just greeting. And we can get into that as the conversation goes. The reason people protest is because it's so important. Here's the interesting thing. Most of us don't know the answer to that question, at least not completely. We don't know how we're doing. I don't know how I am. Some of us are only slightly unaware of how we're doing. But others of us are totally unaware of how we're doing. We don't even know how we got here this morning. We don't know how we got through the week. 
the life is this blur and there's disappointment and frustration. And, you know, years ago we were frustrated with where we are in life and it didn't get any better. It just kept going. I don't know how I'm doing. In fact, here might be a good adjustment. Hi, how are you? I don't know. How are you? I don't know either. Thanks for asking. You know who does know how you are? God. He knows the answer to that question. And that's what's being demonstrated in these two chapters with these seven churches. Each church is being asked, how are you? And really the answer is being given by Jesus. Here's how you are. And if you're not doing well, church, let me talk to you about how you can do better. Because this is the heart of Jesus Christ. He wants to know how you're doing. He's asking you this question right now. And he wants you to do better. That's why we have the Bible. That's why we have these words. Not so we can be scared of them and feel bad. God doesn't need the Bible. He doesn't need us to tell us that we like the Bible. Uh, God, thank you for the Bible. It's really cool. Thank you. He doesn't need that. It's for us. He gave it to us. It's his word to us and for us. And we see his heart through it because he means us to. And his heart for us is that we would be doing better, that we would get through, especially the worst of times. And that's what we see reflected in these letters. The first of these letters is to the church in Ephesus. Maybe it's the biggest. Maybe it's one of the biggest cities. Some sources I read said that this is where the, the, the government was seated. Others say Pergamum is where it was seated. And the Roman government may have moved it or may have not or split it up. But Ephesus is an important city. It's the home of the Temple of Artemis. The church here is doing well in terms of combating false teaching, and that's the problem, except they have another issue, another thing that Jesus says he doesn't like. And it's interesting to see what he notices and what he thinks about what he's seeing because he's noticing that in me and you right now. And he has an opinion of it right now. And his opinion of what's going on in us, well, that would be the most important opinion there is. We want to know this. And the Bible gives us information about this, the Word. Thousands of years old, and yet current right now in your life at this moment. That's the power of it. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. So, hi, how are you, church in Ephesus? Well, here's how you are. At first, we notice in that first verse what a church is. A church is marked by a lampstand and an angel. These are not difficult images. These are creative. Of course they are. They come from our creator. They're artistic. They're powerful. A lampstand. Jesus said, let your light shine into the world. What is that light? That light is the gospel. Angel comes from the word angelos, which means messenger. The message is the gospel. An angel is like the gospel embodied, the message embodied. So there it is, the lampstand, the, the, the mark 
the, 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 the claim in geography of a church. Like, you're, you're in this place, and you're there to shine the light of Christ. What is that? That's your angelos. That's your message. That's the gospel. And these folks have been doing all right. The, the how are you part comes up now in verse 2. Pretty good so far. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. That's a phrase we're going to see more. And that's a phrase I want to encourage you to become more friendly with. Get on better terms with this phrase, patient endurance. And get on better terms with the word patience. Because apparently, the sign that you are living a Christian life is that you are experiencing the need for patient endurance. Amen? Some of you turned to the right or the left when you said amen. <laughs> That's interesting. Amen. <laughs> yep. Patient endurance. It's not a sign that you're doing it wrong. Don't believe the people who say there's some shortcut there where life is supposed to be easier and there's no problems. And, and if you read the Bible and you believe it, then you're, it's, it's all gold all the time, all easy all the time. That's not what it says in the Bible over and over again. We see this phrase, patient endurance. Why is it there if we don't need it? We need it. And he gives it to us. And it's a sign that we're alive in him because we have to be patient and we have to endure. Never mind the nonsense of not praying for patience. That is a false characterization of God that he's going to slam you because you said the prayer wrong. Uh, I, I never appreciated that. Patience is important. Patience is the power of God. That's the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. A patient person wins every time. If you're more patient, you're going to do better, period, in any situation. Your impatience is your failure. It's your flaw. It's your foolishness, your folly. Forget impatience. Stop valuing it. Patience is the power of God for the believer. It really is. Enduring patience. That means patience is going to help you endure. It's going to help you make it through. And that's what we see in these people. That's pretty good. And what are they being patient with? What are they enduring? The fact that they have to kick out these false apostles. Apostle means sent one. These weren't sent. These imposters were false. They were not in line with the lampstand and the angel. They preached a non-gospel or a false gospel. Well, how do we know? How do you know if a message is counterfeit? Well, how do you know if money is counterfeit? I'm sure you've heard this sermon illustration. You can know that money is counterfeit when you study the real thing. And, in fact, now... You can go online to uscurrency.gov, uscurrency.gov, and you can take a free course and learn about your paper money. Because anymore, now some of these bills, especially the larger ones, they've got all these stripes and designs and sparkly things. You hold it up to the light and there's a video playing in there. I mean, it's amazing, right? You've got to learn what the real thing looks like because when you know what the real thing looks like, you can tell what a counterfeit is. It's the same with the Bible. It's the same with the gospel. Amen. And the course is the Bible you're holding in your hand. That's the Holy Spirit's course on the real thing. Here is a broad summary of that course in three big points. There's a lot more that can be said about it. But here's where I would start. If somebody asked me, well, what's the whole course? 
and what, is, what, what true teaching is. Here we go. Jesus plus nothing. You've heard that before, likely. Heresy, that means to add something to the gospel. That's spiritually destructive. There are two basic directions it goes in. One is towards legalism, which is adding rules or replacing grace with rules. And the other is in the other direction, towards licentiousness, which I know is a big word, but I like it because it has the word license in it. Because people who are licentious believe they have a license from the gospel to sin. Now I can get away with my immorality. I can get away with what I want to get away with. I can have my sin in heaven too. That's why I came up with, I don't know, I've never heard anyone else use it, but I've, I needed to come up with this phrase, Jesus minus nothing, just in my, my teaching, my discipleship, my counseling. Because I had so many people tell me that, well, I did this, I did this other thing, but you know what, you just got to forgive me and restore me to leadership or restore me to some place of privilege. And no, that's not what the Bible says. It's Jesus plus nothing, but it's also Jesus minus nothing. If you're saved by grace, then grace keeps you from jumping back into what you're saved from. Amen? Amen. Amen. So he didn't die just to buy us a ticket out of hell. He died to buy us. He bought us with his blood. We belong to him. That's why we call him Lord, and that is more than an honorary title. And so that's why I came up with Jesus minus nothing because people were committing another form of heresy, sort of a, a backdoor heresy by saying, well, it's just grace, grace. And in fact, there's a whole, there was a whole movement. It didn't last very long. But it was a few years ago. We even had a church or two raise up around us. And there was, they, were, they were part of what was called the hyper-grace movement. You could get away with whatever you can get away with. In fact, let's see how much sin you can commit this week and we'll come back and just enjoy Jesus' forgiveness. It's like, oh, that's not going to work. <laughs> and, and apparently it hasn't worked because <laughs> sin is death. Sin brings death of, of relationships. Uh, the most important thing we have, our relationship with God and our relationship with each other. It destroys every time, all the time. It explains the condition of our world. Jesus plus nothing, don't add anything. Jesus minus nothing, don't take away from what he's done for you on the cross. And very importantly, Jesus per Scripture. Per means according to. Jesus according to Scripture. We must limit our information about Jesus to what he gives us in his word and what aligns with that. So many other non-aligned groups have said things about him, made claims about him, groups without lampstand, without angel. They claim Jesus to bolster their claims. All false teaching, especially as described here in the Bible, comes from sources other than the Bible. Now, you might want to add that misunderstanding of the Bible is part of this as well. That's part of false teaching. But I would hesitate to do that because we are all growing in our understanding of the Bible. Bible content mistakes that are not externally influenced 
are not what Jesus is calling false teaching in these letters, even though he doesn't like them either. These things get straightened out through true teaching. False teaching does not get straightened out. It gets thrown out. Amen? And this is really important because I, you don't want to be afraid to read your Bible. And you don't want to think that someone else out there has it all perfect. You don't want to have this idea that there's some Bible teacher out there, some disciple out there who's never wrong. That is dangerous. That is unnecessary. We are all, I'm growing in my knowledge of Scripture. Every teacher I know is growing in every way and especially in his knowledge of Scripture. And so you don't want to be afraid of that. You don't want to be afraid to make a mistake with the Bible. Assume that you are and that the Bible will help you out of that mistake, through that mistake, with that mistake. Many times I've gotten something in Scripture because I made a mistake with it. And then Jesus has taken that mistake and used that to help me really learn something about God. Really learn. And there's no false anything in that process. That's the process of discipleship. That's, that's the process of sanctification. So we all make mistakes within the grace of God. And there's only one Bible. So back to Ephesus. How are they doing really? Let's see. I know you are enduring patiently. There it is again. Apparently it's important. Apparently it's something Jesus notices and commends. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. The way that's worded is uncomfortable for me because I often will use weariness as a badge. I'm exhausted. I'm tired. I'm weary. And the way it reads here is, well, you chose to be weary. And that takes away all my righteousness in proclaiming my weariness and my exhaustion. My tire, I'm tired. I'm tired. I'm tired. Why are you tired? Because I, and pretty soon that comes apart. Yeah. So he's commending them for not growing weary. But I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Ouch. Oh, this loss of love, this abandoned love. Is it a loss of love for Jesus? Is it a loss of love for brothers and sisters in Christ? Is it both? I side with those who say it's both because I have only and always seen both. When I lose love for God, I lose love for my brothers and sisters in Christ. When I lose love for my brothers and sisters in Christ, it uh, dampens my love for God. He ties them together. We cannot separate them. Many of us try, especially in this day, when you're going to be a Christian all on your own, a little lone ranger Christian doesn't exist. No such thing. I know, you're here. I don't know why I'm telling you. You're in church. But your friends who aren't say, I'm all by myself, just me and Jesus. Really? What would Jesus say about that? Is there one person in heaven? There's, there's people in heaven. There's people. Was there one apostle? There's 12 or 11. Depends on how you look at it. <laughs> but there was a number. It's a group. We're, we're saved to be back together in communion with him and with each other. And he emphasizes that all the time. He's asked one question that has one answer. What's the greatest commandment? Love God with all your heart, with all your soul. 
and two answers to one question, and love your neighbor as yourself. There it is. So I go with both on that. But no matter what, every time I read that, I, I don't escape those words either. Oh. And, and know that you're not just reading about these people who lost their love. You're getting taken apart by the Scriptures. There it is on the screen. Performing surgery on you right now. How are you doing? He sees. He sees that lack of love. And it matters to him. I make the mistake, and I know I'm not alone in this room, of thinking, well, he just wants me to do my work. I have work to do for him. He doesn't need me to do anything. He does the work anyway, especially the work that lasts. He wants a relationship with me. He wants fellowship with me. And he wants that fellowship with me with others. That's how it works, always. We, we don't live alone. I know we live in an age where we think we live alone, but that whole idea of living alone is something provided you by everyone else around you. I'm all by myself. I'm private. Yeah, we can all see you all by yourself and private. It's no secret, the secret you're trying to keep. And it never is. And if you're a pastor like me for 25 years, you know that there are no secrets because guess what? I hear them all. I don't want to hear them. They come my way anyway. No secrets. None. Yeah. So what do we do? What now? Abandoned love. What do we do? Remember, therefore, he says, where you have fallen. Repent. Do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So there's a lot here. And a lot that runs counter to what we've heard, depending on who we've listened to. First of all, this is saying to look, look back. Look back. Look in the past. Repent doesn't mean to feel sorry for your sins. You ought to feel sorry for your sins, but repent is a much bigger word than that. Repent comes from the Greek word metanoia, where we get the word metamorphosis. It's a change, a transformation, a turning, if you will. So when we repent from our sins, we don't just cry about them and feel sorry for them. We turn away from them. We leave them behind with the power that God gives us to leave them behind. I remember I was there. I don't know what year it was. We were in Washington. The Promise Keepers movement was at its height, and we were there all by the Washington Monument on our knees, all crying for our sins, weeping. Ah. And then a month later, the same guys who were into porn before were still into porn. And the same guys cheating on their wives were still cheating on their wives, but at least they felt sorry for their sins. No, that's not repentance. And other people say, well, you repent, and you have to do that first. Before you accept Christ as your Lord and Savior, you repent. Except you don't because you can't 
because you're incapable of doing that. If you had the capability of doing that, then you would have some righteousness to add to the picture. But the whole point of the cross is that you have no righteousness. So you can't make a righteous decision like the decision to repent. You need God's help to do that. So repentance cannot be just limited to a prerequisite to salvation. It is, in fact, an ingredient of salvation. So it's not something you do once. I repented of my sin, and now I came to Christ, and now I'm doing great. I don't have to endure patiently. Don't listen to him. No, no, no. Yeah, repentance is, a, is probably the best word to describe coming to faith. And then you can continue to do this. This is available to you. If not, then why is he saying, why is Jesus saying to believers to repent? They're believers like you. So it's not just something you say to strangers, repent, the end is near. In fact, much more so, if we want to be biblical about it, it's something we, we hear for ourselves as Christians. Wait a minute. This thing that I'm, I'm dragging, this thing that I'm hiding, this secret life, this secret sin, I can turn from it. Not in my own power, not because I even want to. I don't want to. That's the problem. But Jesus will give me my want to. He'll be my want to. And he'll help me to turn from that sin. He'll help me to repent. He'll help me to turn to him and away from it to life and away from death. And that's all part of the power of these letters. And behind all that, you can see the love of God. The love of God is part of what's required for a lampstand. Obviously, we look backwards, we repent, we turn then, because Jesus helps us with our past. We don't just forget about it, throw it away. Ah, forget the past. You could say that all you want. It's not going to happen. Jesus redeems your past. He redeems your wounds, your pain, your suffering. He gives it dignity. He gives it purpose. That's one of the most beautiful parts of the Christian life is that all this nonsense, all this insanity, this chaos that you're having to be patiently enduring, well, he'll use it for a holy purpose in your life. He'll refine you with this. But not if you say, well, I don't even want to think about it. I'm just going to be happy. Don't worry, be happy. Uh, forget about worrying and forget about being happy. Let Christ do his work in your life through the Spirit. Let Christ help you face what's surrounding you. That's a big part of what's happening in these churches. The culture around them is evil. We can relate. Amen? We can relate. Some more about the Ephesians. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We don't know who these guys are. We don't know what they did. But we know whatever it is fell somewhere on the spectrum between legalism and licentiousness, that false teaching spectrum. Most people believe that it was pagan-influenced sexual immorality blended with Christianity. I read one commentator. He had a powerful point to make. He said that all Satan wants to do, he wants, you know, you can keep all your Christianity. He just wants you to do this other stuff too. Just be okay with sexual sin. That's happening. That's happening in the church. We're just okay with it. And in fact, it's being called a sin now to not be okay with sexual sin. 
Now you don't know the love of God. You don't know grace. You're sinning. You're evil. By calling evil, evil, you're evil, says the culture around us. And Christians, so-called Christians, are falling for it. Don't fall for it. That's part of the message here. Don't be tricked. Don't be recruited. Say no to that. Repent of that. Repent of the temptation to join in with that. Just because you don't want to rock the boat. The boat is sinking. Forget about rocking it. It's going down. He's going to help you. He's going to lift you up out of that. He's going to rescue you from these troubled waters. That's what he's saying over and over again here. And it's a beautiful thing. He who has an ear, that means listening. But it means more than just hearing the way we hear. In the Bible, when it talks about hearing, it means heeding. You hear and you obey. You don't just hear and say, oh, that's interesting. I'm going to do what I want. Nope. You hear it and it, it changes. Your, your response is dictated to you by what you hear from God. Let him who has ears, let him hear. It's not complicated. It's not difficult. The Spirit of God is speaking here to the churches, not the Spirit of the times. The tree of life, that's a powerful image. It bookends Scripture. There it is at the beginning of Genesis, the tree of life. And then you go through all the Bible and all of human history, and there it is at the end of Scripture, at the end of the book of Revelation, the tree of life. It's about God's blessing, his eternal provision of life. That thing in you that you feel, remember that first time you learned that you were going to die? I don't know how old I was when the concept of death occurred to me in its fullness. And for some people, it hasn't yet struck, even in adulthood. But as a kid, I got it, and I was offended deeply. Like, what? I'm going to die? I understand these other people, but me? What? What? Yeah. So I went through all these religions, all these cults, all this irreligion, atheism, and yet the only one offering me what I really wanted was the Lord God, the God of the Bible. And what do I want? I want that tree. I want the tree. Why do I want it? Because he made me want it. Why do you want it? Because that's his spirit in you, stirring you to say no to death, to say no to sin, and to say yes to him. Ah, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. Don't miss it. Don't yawn at it. Contemplate it. Consider it. Reflect on it. We're given these pictures so we can see them. Do you get that? They're pictures you're given so you can see them, picture them. That's why the word is written the way it's written. So let's look at where we are. Here's a map. Check this out. So you can go around the circle, and you're going to go in the order of the letters in Revelation 2 and 3, so it's full circle. Isn't that cool? I think that's cool. Maybe I'm a nerd. I don't know. But these little blessings are big blessings to me because full circles was all about. God's got it. He's taking care of it. He knows what he's doing. I know that and yet I forget it. I think I know what I'm doing and I forget that I don't. And that's where the trouble comes from. 
I forget who's in charge. You do too. It's our shared problem in life every day. There he is, the circle. So Ephesus is where we started. Now we move to Smyrna. Smyrna is one of two churches among the seven who heard no rebuke from Jesus. There are two churches that heard only rebuke from Jesus and no commendation of the seven. But Smyrna is a place, not much written about Smyrna. That doesn't mean that Smyrna is not much. Look at verse 8. How are you doing, Smyrna? Here we go. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews, but they are not. But you, but are a synagogue of Satan. Let me read that again. The slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So you see a summation of the gospel there in verse 8, died and came to life. That's the gospel. Holy Week, Good Friday, Easter Sunday. That's the gospel. Crucifixion Friday, Resurrection Sunday. That's why we make a big deal of it because there's no bigger deal to be made of anything because there is no bigger deal. It's the big event. It's the biggest of big events. That's why every Easter I go nuts. And I got, I got some, I get, I get negative mail because of that. You should not be yelling in church. I did. I got like a really blistering, nasty email last, last time. But I hear, like, we were at the high school, and I'm walking to the high school. I don't know if you're here, because I can't see that well, even though I have glasses. But this is the high school, and I'm walking from class to class where my daughter goes to school, my oldest daughter, and I hear behind me, he is risen! He is risen indeed! Somebody yelling. I'm like, I don't know what that is. Just, just keep walking. And the person who gave it is a goodwill person. Ah, I just wanted to say it. Yeah. Yeah, we got called out a lot by the teachers there because a lot of them go here or know here. And that's cool. That's a testament to who you are. That's why I go nuts. That's why I, I have to, right? Well, would it be appropriate to say, well, it's Easter. He's risen. So that's a good thing, right? Amen. Amen. How would that work? Does that work? Is that appropriate? I don't think so. No. And every Easter you have people show up. And I never criticize that. I never say, well, where were you the rest of the year? I don't do that at all. Because I'm glad you're here. You're here. We're together. It's a beautiful thing. Yep. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So this is a harbor city with all kinds of temples to emperors. Most of the cities had that. The emperors were worshipped. John would see the, the Roman religion, which is a variation of Greek mythology, and see that tied to the Roman government. They were really one, and that's important to understand as you go forward in learning about the book of Revelation. Poverty and slander reveal true wealth and honor here. True wealth and true honor because the church is doing well in God's eyes even though it's not doing well in the eyes of the world. The synagogue of Satan refers to certain Jewish persecutors of the Christian faith whose persecution reveals that they can't even be real or true Jews. It's so harsh and out of line. But the emphasis is not on people here. It's on Satan on the devil, on spiritual warfare. And you see that in the next verse. 
Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So 10 days might not seem like a long time, but most commentaries I read said that that's probably as long as they lasted. Because this is really a clear reference, most believe, to full martyrdom, to death, what it looks like, what it feels like, how Jesus views it. The crown of life, that's like a, a, a laurel or leaf laurel that you'd see. You'd see in all kinds of statues back then. And it's a symbolic here of eternal life. We know it's about death. We can see that here in this verse, the last one to the letter addressed to the church in Smyrna. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. It's a powerful concept, the second death. It underscores the fact that all people are involuntarily subjected to God's judgment. All of us. All of us here as well. However, we have Jesus via the cross standing with us, standing for us in that judgment so that we cannot be hurt by either death. That's part of what we're to remember here. Physical death is not the worst thing by far. It is a thing. And if you trust in Jesus, then that physical death is, is part of the journey that he has you on, the journey home to him. Embracing him and our great hope, all of us, is to hear from him, well done, good and faithful servant. So Ephesus had false teaching. They needed to get that love back that they had. Smyrna had just to, to hang on and, and, and make it all the way home. No rebuke for them. Pergamum had persecution and false teaching. It was quite a place. There it is on top. It's a top star there, the northernmost of the churches. If not the seat of government, it certainly was the seat of political passion, Roman political passion, Roman patriotism. There were several different shrines and temples there. There was a huge statue, a huge temple to Zeus, the altar of Zeus, gigantic. And, and an altar would be called a throne back then. And you'll see in a moment why that matters. There was also a temple to the snake god, Asclepius, and apparently you could be healed by this god. So people from all over the Roman Empire would come to Pergamum for healing. False healing, apparently. It was a dark place, a brutal place. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, right, the words of him who has the sharp, ed, sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So that throne of Satan, I, wrote, I, re I read somewhere that it was a pro-council's judgment seat in some people's eyes, but most people see that as the altar of Zeus, the throne of Zeus. There's lots written about it. We know what we know for sure based on what's here in the scriptures. But tradition says that this Antipas was the bishop of Pergamum. 
and that he was killed by being slowly roasted in a bronze pot, bronze kettle, or another version, he was roasted inside a hollowed-out bronze bull by the, the throne of Zeus, the throne of Satan, if that's the throne of Satan being referred to here. He was not the last martyr in this city. And whether or not those traditional renderings of history are true or not, well, we know it is true. This man's name appears in Scripture for one reason. He died for his faith. Churches exist in evil places and evil cities. Bad things happen to Christians, yet because they are Christians, better things are to follow. This is part of the commendation. Now Jesus has some words of correction. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So this is, again, familiar stuff. The Nicolaitans come up again. And now Balaam. We can read about him in the book of Numbers, Numbers 22 through 24. We know that these are all bad people, spiritually. False prophets with false teachings and false practices, all in the name of their false gods. Don't be tricked by them. Don't be recruited by them. Turn away from their immorality and idolatry. It feels like to me that these words fit our times quite well. Indeed. All the world needs to do to win is to make us like them, to be like them. And we historically cooperate with our own destruction all too often. What's the, what's the remedy here? What can we do? How do we respond to this? Well, here it is. Therefore, repent. Oh, that's a better word than you thought it was, isn't it? It's not just a word there for the beginning that I can't use anymore. It's expired in terms of its usefulness. No way. That's a, that's a great word. That's an undiscovered treasure now that you're rediscovering it. Oh, therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So the manna and the stone with a new name, maybe it's your new name, maybe it's God's new name, when you get it, you're not going to care. You might not even think to look. I always wondered. I bet you're not even going to look when you first get it. And then somebody say, didn't you always, oh, oh yeah, let me see. Because you're getting in. It's your ticket in. That's what it's about. Stay. Don't quit. Don't give up. Don't abandon ship. Don't abandon your first love. Don't abandon Christ. He won't abandon you. Stick to him as he sticks to you. And he'll give you the power to stick to him because you don't have it. You're too weak. That's the whole point. He's your strength. He's your savior. He's going to get you through. So, how are you, really? <laughs> It'd be good to know that, that answer. 
Here's, here's another way to explore what the Spirit is doing through these letters in our hearts, in our lives. What would Jesus say if he wrote a letter to you individually? What would he commend? What would he condemn? What would he say? Begin to think about that. Ask God for answers to that. And you're well on your way to where the Scriptures want you to be, a place where you will indeed patiently endure. Amen. Pray with me if you would. Lord, help us now to feel your care for us, your concern for us, your love for us, as we see the evidence of it to these churches that you write to, that you direct your message to. Lord, help us to, to hear, and by that we mean heed, your counsel to us. Only with your help will we make it. And Lord, your help begins at the cross, is rooted there at the foot of the cross. We don't depart the cross. We repent of everything else and we turn to the cross. Some here may need to do it right now. Lord Jesus, I come to you and I confess my sins to you. I, I confess that there is much I need to repent of, and so I repent of it because you're giving me the power to do it because you're calling me back home. Here I am at the foot of your cross, facing you, saying yes to you, acknowledging you as Lord and Savior. Lord, some of us need this now. We need to return to our first love. Help us with this. Help us to hang on. Others of us, we have grown weary, whether by our own choice or not. We can't figure that out. We're too weary to even think about it. Lord, you are here to hold us up. We have exhausted our strength. We'd have none left. And so we need you. We need your strength. We need your ability working through us so that we may indeed patiently endure. And help us, Lord, to repent of whatever we need to repent of to turn from it, to face it, see it for what it is, and as your Spirit enables us to turn from it, to leave it behind and to pursue you and your will for our lives and your glory over all things. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. We conclude with a song, Lord, and your spirit always works through that as we sing together, as we hear our own voices and the voices of brothers and sisters extolling your praises, rehearsing the truth of your word and song. Lord, would you minister deeply to anyone here who felt the, the edge of the blade of that question, how are you? It hurt to hear that question. They may not know exactly what the answer is to the question, but inside themselves right now, it, it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel right. Lord, would you minister to them now powerfully? Minister to them. Meet them at the point of their pain, the point of their doubt, the point of their failure, and show them as you have been showing them who you are, 
who you are as we learn and see in your word. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you again for listening to today's sermon. For more resources and information about Goodwill Church, visit goodwillchurch.org. God bless.